Our scripture reading today is Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verses 22 to 32. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Be made new in your attitude of your mind. Put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. Speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. But must work. Do something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those who need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. But only what is helpful for building up others according to their need, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. With whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. God, I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would once again make the words of scripture alive to your people. May they be for us uh, life and truth. May we know them. May you speak to us and shape us through your word that we may know what it means to live in obedience to you. I pray that, that you would so shape us as a people that the lives that we live would be a reflection of your goodness and your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, my wife and I were in our uh, first year of marriage, and she was sharing uh, with me something that had been causing her distress, something that was bothering her. And I don't at all remember what the particular issue was uh, that day, but I do remember very well uh, my approach to it. Uh, I, was, I was hearing my wife uh, talk, and, and, and I'm sitting there trying to, to break the whole situation down in my mind so I understand everything that's going on here. So she's, she's telling me uh, the, these issues and the, the stuff that's causing her to dist- distress, and I'm thinking through, okay, wh- what are the root causes here? Uh, and I'm starting to, to brainstorm potential solutions. How can I solve this problem that my wife is um, bringing to me? Uh, and, and I was really excited about this because this was an opportunity for me to, uh, to use my problem-solving skills for the good of our marriage. And this was an opportunity for us to come together and to find a solution to a problem. And now some of you who have been married for a long time are whispering uh, at each other because you know where this is going. See, I was expecting my wife to treat me as the hero because I was solving her issues. I was solving the problem. But to my surprise, when, when I interjected and started sharing my uh, solutions and what I thought some of the root causes were, I started analyzing it and then laying out for her a, a path forward, 
she didn't just break into a smile and call me her hero and say that I had solved everything. In fact, she got more distressed because of the way I handled that situation than it was before. Rather than solving the issue, I had just made it worse. So eventually we sorted everything out, and and I learned a a marriage-saving lesson that day. There, There are times when my wife is not looking for a solution. There are times when what she most needs is for me to hear her, to be heard, and to be understood. I totally misread the situation, and so I took the wrong approach to it, and I totally messed up the whole thing. See, it's easy for us to do that even when it comes to something like the Ten Commandments. We can, we can look at it a particular way and read it a particular way and then take a wrong approach to what it means to actually obey these commands and, and to live in light of them. See, sometimes I think we can reduce the Ten Commandments down to just a behavioral change. Like, here are ten things that we should do and shouldn't do. And when I look at it that way, it, I can just kind of have a checklist of morality. Okay, so you come to uh, the message this morning, uh, the eighth command, you shall not steal. And you say, okay, well, that's great. You shall not steal. Check, I don't steal. There was a Barna study uh, several years ago that showed that 90% of us don't think we steal. 90% of evangelical uh, Christians think that they never break the command to not steal. So that's great. So if if all the Ten Commandments are is just sort of a a bare-bones ethic of morality, and it's just about the behaviors, then we can check that off and move on, and we don't have a whole lot to say this morning. And that's good. It's it's good that we don't steal. It, It is a foundational Christian ethic. But the Ten Commandments at the same time are more than just a checklist for morality. See, the Ten Commandments are shaping a particular people. They're showing us what it means to live in obedience to God and to be marked as God's people. They're they're not just about, yes, I do that, no, I don't do that. They're about saying, what kind of people is God calling us to be? This is what God's doing. He's calling a people uh, out to live under his rule in the world. And as we uh, look at the Ten Commandments, we're seeing what kind of a people we should be. It's not just about what we do, but it's about who God is making us to be. It's getting past just the surface level behaviors to the heart that is driving all of this. So this morning, we're going to look at what it means to be a people who would not steal. What's the heart behind this? How is God shaping us so that we can actually be a different kind of a people? Because when we're actually shaped by this, then we live in the light, and we then become a light shining out to those who don't yet know God to show his goodness for all to see. So this morning we've got the eighth commandment. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. It's found on page 74 of the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to look there. Uh, the text is very short this morning. Uh, Exodus twenty fifteen says this, You shall not steal. So what kind of a people is God shaping when he gives a command like this? We're going to look at this in in several parts. First, we're going to look at uh, the transformation that's needed if we're going to be a not-stealing kind of people, the the fundamental transformation that has to happen. And then we're going to look at several obstacles that get in the way of that transformation happening. So first, the transformation itself. If we're going to be people who do not steal, what has to happen in us? The transformation is going from being takers to being givers. See, stealing, as you of course know, is about taking something that belongs to someone else. Everybody knows that, and everybody has done that. So right now, in the lower level of our church, in a church building, there is a toddler who has a really cool toy. And toddler A, with that really cool toy, is across the room from toddler B. Toddler B is going to notice that really cool toy that toddler A is holding. And what are they going to do? 
They're going to drop whatever they're doing, and they're going to beeline toward that toy. They're probably not even going to see toddler A. They're going to grab the toy, and if they're strong enough or aggressive enough or bigger enough, they're going to take that toy, and that toy is going to be theirs. See, this is us, right? From a very young age, we are takers. We see something, we want it, and so we take it. We steal. This is where stealing comes from. We are born takers. One of the problems with this, of course, is that we don't think anything of the person that we're taking from. I mean, toddler B isn't thinking anything of toddler A. They're just thinking about that really cool toy. But think of what happens psychologically to toddler A as that toy is taken away. There's the the obvious issue that now they're suddenly left toyless as toddler B has taken away that really cool toy. But more importantly, toddler B has been mean to them. They've not treated them as a fellow human being worthy of dignity and respect and honor as a person made in the image of God. They have only treated them as an obstacle to getting what they really want. And so not only left toyless, but also now left dehumanized, toddler A starts crying. That's why your kids cry, right? It's because they feel not only the loss of this toy, but this this dehumanizing force that has just happened to them. Stealing demonstrates a wrong view of the people around us, right? That's, that's the, the root problem here. It doesn't take the people that, that we come into contact with seriously as those who are made in the image of God, people who are so loved by God that he sent his son to die for them. See, our, our default mode of existence is to be self-centered people. We, we center our world around ourselves. And when that's true, how do we think about the people around us? They're just there for what they can provide me. Maybe they are there as a, as a potential source of happiness for me. Or maybe they're there as a potential source of revenue for me. Or maybe they're a potential rung on a ladder of my own ambition of what I want to get. Others around me are just seen for what I can take from them and then the good that I can receive from them. And this is how we uh, live in our world. Uh, there's a, a um, Philip Reichen, a pastor out in um, Philadelphia, actually now uh, president of the, my alma mater, points to a classic uh, Saturday evening post um, uh, illustration on the cover from Leslie Thrasher called Tipping the Scales. Uh, it shows this um, kind of classic scene of a woman at a butcher shop. And if you'll notice the detail, you'll see what's going on here. Uh, on the right hand is this butcher, and he's looking up at the scale um, to determine how much he's going to charge this woman for this chicken. And if you'll notice, his finger is on the scale pushing it down to make the charge more expensive. And on the other side of the picture is this uh, well-dressed woman smiling as she looks up at the scale because she's trying to tip it the other way. Her finger is underneath it, and she's poking up on that so that the uh, charge is less than it should be. Both of them are trying to steal from the other. It's a quaint picture of Americana, but it's an example of how we try to steal from one another. This is breaking the Eighth Commandment. And of course, you'd never do that, right? Because nowadays they have the, the little way things on the counter. You can't actually push your finger up there, although you'd, you'd try really hard if you thought you could probably get away with it. But there are countless ways that we steal. Most people here would not go around and snag someone's bag, right? Most of us would not steal a car or rob a bank. That's what we think of when we think of stealing. But stealing happens in tons of different ways. It's all the ways that we try to, to cheat another person. We try to take from them so that we have more. I mentioned several weeks ago that when I was in high school, a, a big thing that among me and my friends was to download uh, MP3 music files online. And none of us were paying for the songs. We were just downloading the songs. We never would steal a CD from a store, an actual physical CD, but we were downloading songs by the hundreds. We were stealing. 
Same thing happens today with, with uh, copyright violations on like software use and stuff like that. You can download all sorts of software and uh, not pay for it, and what you are doing then is effectively stealing. Or maybe uh, as an employee, you have to fill out a time card. Maybe you put you know, an extra five minutes there, an extra 10 minutes there, maybe you know, round up a quarter an hour. What you are doing is effectively stealing. You're saying you're there when you are not there, and you want a wage that you haven't earned. Or maybe as an employee, you're using uh, company resources for your personal good. So in time where you are, uh, you, maybe you're paid hourly, and you're using company time to look around on the internet, maybe do some shopping, maybe a little bit of research for yourself. That is effectively stealing. You are being paid for, to work those hours. You're not being paid to do online shopping. It's one of the subtle ways that we steal. Or maybe when uh, April comes around or, or next spring comes around, you're going to be tempted to steal from the U.S. government by kind of tweaking the numbers a little bit or at least under-reporting on your income tax. There are all sorts of ways that we steal uh, from one another. We are takers. We are born takers. And it's easy for us, even as Christians, to join in on that and to participate in it. But God causes people to be different. Look at the commands that surround uh, the ones here. The, the last half of the Ten Commandments are really about how we treat one another. So the specific ones here, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. All of these are directed at the protection of the people around us. So you shall not murder is directed at the protection of our neighbor's life. You shall not commit adultery is aimed at the protection of our neighbor's marriage and spouse. You shall not steal is aimed at the protection of our neighbor's property. See, what we discover is that there's actually an obligation that we have to the people around us. They're not just there so that I can take things from them for my own betterment. I actually have to care for them. I, ha I have some sort of obligation to care for them. God calls his people to do that. God calls his people to love one another, to love the other person that's around it. Don't just see them as people that you can gain something from, but see that you are called to love them and to care for them. That's why Jesus responds as he does when he's asked what the greatest command is. In Matthew 22, he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And this is what he says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. In other words, he's saying that this whole thing, all of what God commands his people is summarized in these two parts, love God and love neighbor. As we look at the, the first half of the Ten Commandments, that's what it's about. It's about loving God, worshiping him, and not anything else. The second half of the Ten Commandments is about loving one another, and that's where stealing fits in. If you steal from someone, are you showing love for them? Of course not. You're taking from them for yourself. So this whole thing is summarized by love God, love neighbor. And in the specific case of the Eighth Commandment, the transformation that has to happen in us is coming from being a stealer, someone who takes, to instead being someone who gives. This is what uh, Paul tells uh, the believers in Ephesus in, in his letter to them. This is Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to the, the path that he lays out for those who are takers, stealers. This is Ephesians 4.28. We just heard it uh, as part of the lar uh, larger passage. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they might have something to share with those in need. And do you notice what's going on there? That's the path, right? If you are stealing, if you're being a taker, and that's your mode of existence, and then you come to, to believe in Jesus Christ, something has to happen. You've got to stop that, 
And then you've got to do something to put yourself in position to be able to give generously to others. You've got to work hard, do something useful with your hands, get a job, make an income so that you can actually give to others. I was talking to our friend Enoch uh, between services, and he said, uh, how do you know that someone is no longer a thief? How do you know that a thief is no longer a thief? It's when they give, right? That's, that's the sign of someone who has really gotten this command. They are now a giver. Otherwise, it's just a thief between jobs, he says, right? Just waiting for the next one to come up. The, the transformation that has to happen is from being a taker to being a giver, And that's when you know you've really started to obey the Eighth Commandment. It's not just about, okay, no, I haven't taken anything lately. It's that, no, I am giving. My whole view toward others is transformed. So this is the fundamental transformation that the the Eighth Commandment calls us. It calls us to not steal. And the, the application of that for us who are followers of Jesus Christ is to stop stealing, stop being a taker, and to instead be generous, be a giver. Now, um, let's look at some of the things that get in the way of that. That's the transformation that has to happen. That's really hard for some of us. Some of us have a very tight grip on our stuff. Some of us are stuck in that mode of taker. And for that to happen, there are lots of things that get in the way so that rather than being givers, we're just stuck being takers. So let's look at these obstacles. And and by the way, I I promise not to try to make you feel guilty. We've done a lot of that in the past several weeks. Make you feel guilty and then show you how uh, Jesus forgives you and you can kind of move on with your life. I'm not going to try to make you feel guilty this morning. But let's just look at some of the obstacles here so we can kind of try to understand what it means for us to be transformed from, from takers into givers, to actually obey this command to not steal. This command, uh, the first obstacle is, is how we look at our stuff and how we think about ownership. This command assumes the right to personal property, right? You can't steal something if it's owned by you. If it's owned communally, stealing doesn't make sense. So this assumes the right of personal property. And most of us, if you're like me, you're happy with the right of personal property, Ownership and possessing has this uh, draw for us. So even from a very early age, you watch kids, and they hear this word, mine, and they latch onto this word, and they apply it liberally to as many things as they can. So that's, that's my stuffed animal. Those are my Legos. And as we get a little older, that's my bike. And as we get a little older, that's my car. That's my house. That's my boat. We, we love this word, my, and the idea of ownership. And this belongs to me. And, and the more I latch onto that word, the more I want more things to apply it to. I, I want the, the pile of things that I can call mine to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I stuff my house full of things that I call mine. And then I make more room because I want that to grow and grow and grow. And maybe I have to get a storage unit to have more stuff that I can put in it to call mine. It just feeds our natural inclination to be takers because it gives that tight grip on it. If I can apply the word mine to it, it's going to be tightly held in my hands. But it's a totally wrong view of stuff. It's a totally wrong view of ownership. See, the Bible teaches us that actually we don't own anything. So uh, Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Well, what does that include? That includes every single thing that you might try to call your own. Now, you might kind of protest and say, Yeah, okay, well, everything is God's, but it's still mine. I mean, I worked really hard for these things. I mean, do you know how many hours I put in to be able to purchase this thing that is now mine? Well, the Bible tells us that even our ability to earn income comes from God. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. You don't even own your own work ethic. You don't even own your own ability to make an income. That is a gift given to you from God. 
And then we learn as we look into the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that everything that we have belongs to God. We, we ourselves belong to God. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. In other words, if you have come to believe in Jesus Christ, that means that you have been purchased by God in him, which means that you don't even belong to yourself anymore. You can't even claim to own you and your own self. Everything that we have, everything we are, belongs to God. And that's a really important change. It changes how we look about at ownership. It changes how we look at everything that we hold on to and, and identify as ours. It means that I don't have to hold things tightly anymore because it's not mine in the first place. Everything that I would apply that label to actually belongs to God. And that means that I, could, I don't have to be a taker anymore. If everything I own belongs to God, then I'm simply a manager of God's things. That's what the, the term stewardship that you hear sometimes in churches is about. You are a steward of what God owns. God owns that you are a steward or a manager of those resources. And so rather than being called to own those and to hold them tightly, we are called to use God's things well. And this totally changes the perspective of how we view stuff. And it breaks the power of our stuff over us. Because see, possessions, I don't know if you've noticed this, possessions can very quickly start to possess us. The closer they are to their hearts, the, the tighter of a grip they have on us. This is shown really well in, in J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, uh, Lord of the Rings books by the, his famous character Gollum. If you've seen the movies or, or read the books, you know about Gollum. Gollum comes into possession of this one gold ring that has this incredible power. What happens to him as he comes into possession of that ring? It takes over every aspect of his life. It, it just holds him tightly. He starts coddling it. He, he talks to it. He can't imagine the thought of it being outside of his possession. He calls it mine, my precious, and he's just guarding it. It totally consumes every aspect of his life. He says that he owns it, but it really is owning him. Now contrast that with Tolkien's hero Frodo. He comes into possession of the ring, but he never considers it his. He's just the one who's getting it from, his pos- or from uh, Gollum's possession to where it belongs, and to his ultimate destruction. That's the difference that this makes in, in thinking about possession. That The one kind of possession, you, you tightly grip onto it, you can't imagine letting go of it, and the other one, you realize it's not yours in the first place, and so you can simply do what you are called to do with it. So the first obstacle in, uh, for, uh, for us for moving from um, being takers to being givers is to just rethink our view of possessions. If everything I be- own already belongs to God, I can be free with it. I can be open-handed, and I can be a giver. But as long as I think of possessions as mine, and as long as I attach that label to it, I will be stuck in this mode of being a taker because I'm going to protect and hoard my stuff. Okay, the second obstacle then to being a giver that gets us stuck in this mode of a stealer, of a taker, is having a really short-sighted perspective. Um, author uh, Randy Alcorn, in his excellent little book on um, Christian uh, view of money called The Treasure Principle, uses the illustration of uh, a dot and a line. Right? The, the dot, right, is just one point in time. It's just a small uh, point on a piece of paper, and that represents your life. Birth to death in one little dot. And the line extends forever, and that's eternity. And he says, most of us live only for the dot. All that we think of as we live our life from birth to death is that dot and what's happening right here, the here and now, right in front of us. 
Most of us give very little thought to that line that goes on forever. But it doesn't make any sense. And Jesus himself points to that in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is telling us that the way that most of us live our lives doesn't really make any sense. We have that limited perspective. We're focused in on the dot. Our whole heart is wrapped up in the stuff that we can accumulate, but it doesn't make any sense because there's a whole eternity in front of us. I mean, think about how much effort we pour into things that have no lasting value. Maybe you have something on your mind that is your next big purchase. What's on your wish list? What comes to mind you think, okay, yeah, that's what I'm going to get next. What are you saving up for right now? You know what it is for me? It's a grill. A Weber Performer Charcoal Grill. Now, what does that have to do with eternity? Nothing. Like, I, I'm saving up. I've got a little cash envelope. I'm putting cash in there. For several months, I've been putting cash in that envelope, saving up to buy this grill. But it's nothing. That won't last. Right? I, here's the thing. I already have a grill. It's a smaller grill. It's a less fancy grill. It's a less nice grill. But what does that matter in, in the scope of eternity? Now, someone after the service, uh, between services, did say, you know, that could have uh, eternal uh, consequences if you then have your neighbors over and have them over for a barbecue and stuff like that. And that's right. I actually, I try to justify it to myself in terms of that. Like, you know, I, I really want to buy that grill. So I'm going to find a way of justifying the fact that, yeah, there is an eternal perspective that I can use to try to justify that purchase. But here's the thing. If something comes up where I can use my little envelope of cash in someone's life that can make an eternal difference, I'm not buying a grill. Maybe I'll have to you know, bump it down six months or something like that. But, but I'll empty that whole envelope of cash if I think that it can make a bigger difference than buying this grill for myself. See, Jesus is calling us to trade insignificant stuff, the stuff that captures our attention, for stuff that really matters, for stuff that will really last. If, as long as I'm fixated on the temporary stuff, as long as I'm fixated on the grill, and then if I buy the grill, the accessories for the grill, and then if I buy the accessories for the grill, stuff to put in my yard so that I can enjoy the grill more and see all the stuff that I now own in light of this grill and all of that, as long as I'm fixated on that, this is what I do with my resources, tightly gripping them, and they are gripping me. But if I'm thinking of that line, it totally changes all of that. I might still get a grill, but I'll get it and I'll try to use it for the line because I know that that's not going to last. It's going to rot and be destroyed, and it's not going to last at all. The line is what is important. If we're ever going to change from being takers to being givers, our perspective has to change. Away from the here and now, the stuff that's your face, to the stuff that's going to last forever. The third obstacle that keeps us from uh, being givers and so leaves us as thieves, those who do steal as, and are takers, the third obstacle is fear and worry. And this is a really big one. This is pervasive. I, I saw a, a study um, this past week that said that one-third of Americans worry all the time about money. All the time. That's one-third of us worry all the time about our money. And I, I admit that the first time I, I saw that, I, I thought, well, okay, that means that two-thirds of the people who took that survey are lying because really all of us worry about money so much. Another study showed that half of us worry about money more often than not. 
Only 3% of people in this study said that they never worried about money. 97% of us are worried about money. Now, what effect does that have on your ability to be a giver? It means you're protecting your stuff. If you're always worried about providing for yourself and providing for your family, your default mode of existence is going to be to hoard and to be a taker. You're never going to be able to get past to be a, uh, the mode of a giver if you're so concerned that you're not going to be able to make ends meet. You're going to be stuck in the mode of taker, hoarding your stuff, hanging on to it. I mean, think about that, that um, picture in the Saturday Evening Post. And that woman probably had a bunch of stuff that she had to buy. And she was probably concerned about the level of, of uh, being able to provide for her family. And so that finger under the scale, that little bit of cheating, that little bit of stealing, is just one way she's going to try to make ends meet. But Jesus tells us that we don't have to worry. Listen to this passage from the Sermon on the Mount. This is a really important one for people uh, like us. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do you hear what Jesus is doing there? He's specifically tying provision to the hand of God. See, very often we think of the natural world as just sort of being out there. You know, birds can find food because God has created the world like this, and, and they can find seeds and all this stuff. But, but Jesus is saying, no, who is the one who feeds the birds of the air? God is. God is the one who provides for them. They don't labor, they don't toil, they don't store up in barns, and yet God feeds them. Or what about the lilies? Again, we just think this is a natural process. This is just how it works. God is hands-off in this. Jesus is saying, no, who is the one who clothes the lily so that it looks that beautiful? It's God himself. God is the one who is caring for these things. And Jesus is saying, listen, they have such a short lifespan. The lifespan of a bird is just small. And a lily, even more so. Lilies come and go in a, in a week or a couple weeks at best. And yet God is actively providing for their needs. And if God is actively providing for the needs of such temporary things, don't you think that people that he made in his own image will be provided for by him? Don't you think we can actually trust him to provide for us? And don't miss what Jesus says in verse 32 there. For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. In other words, the pagans, those who don't know God, are the ones who worry about what they're going to eat, what they're going to wear, how they're going to find shelter. It only makes sense for people who don't know the true God to be worried about these things. Jesus is reminding us that we have a God who loves us, who provides extravagantly for us. 
See, that's the antidote to worry. The, the antidote to worry is not to tell yourself, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. That never works. So just worry more. The antidote to worry and fear and anxiety about being able to provide for our, ourselves and our needs is trusting God. You see, and this points us back to the, the promise that undergirds this command. The God who commands, you shall not steal, is a God who will provide everything you need so that you do not have to steal. See, this is, a, this is a big turning point for us. If we're ever going to be not takers anymore, if we're ever going to be able to obey this command, you shall not steal, to the degree that we then become givers, we have to know that God is going to provide for us no matter what. Now, how do we know this? How can we actually believe and trust that God is going to provide for us? Well, look at what he's done. When he gives these commands to the people of Israel, he says, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's saying, look what I have done for you. I have provided for you. I have rescued you. And because of that, they can then trust him and they don't have to steal anymore. They can be people who are givers, freely handing out to others and being generous and providing for others because they know that God is going to provide everything for them. Or, or us as Christians, what has God done for us? I want to read just a couple verses from the book of Ephesians because they struck me how, the, listen for the language of, of richness and abundance and generosity that is found in these verses from the very beginning of Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are abundantly blessed, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. A couple of verses later, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Do you hear these words? Riches of God's grace lavished on us. Chapter 2, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Israel could look back at God's deliverance from the land of Egypt and the land of slavery and say, listen, if God did that, of course he's going to provide for us now. We can look back at the cross and say, listen, if God didn't even hold back his own son, for miserable sinners who didn't deserve it, but he, he lavished on us his rich mercy and his rich grace. If he did that, then of course he's going to provide for us everything that we need. We can trust him because of what he has done. We can trust him because of who he has shown himself to be. He is abundant in giving to us. He is rich in generosity. And you know what? Just about every single Christian that I know that I've asked about this has a story of how God has provided for them tangibly. Toward the close of the service here, we're going to hear one of those stories of how God has, has done something marvelous in a, in a seemingly small thing, and through a small act, how we can see God's provisions. Go back to those things. Remember what God has done for you. And then you'll know. You'll be able to trust. And you'll know that he's going to provide for you no matter what. This is what we are called to do as Christians, right? To, to look back at what God has done, to tell the stories again and again and again because our God is incredibly generous to his people. We learn to be givers not because we suddenly become really good people. We learn to be givers because God has lavished on us his extravagant, rich mercy and goodness. And this is a huge gospel opportunity for the church. How many of you know people who worry about money? How many of you know people who live for the dot, for everything in their life is just birth to death, and all they can do is think about that? 
How many are, are just intent on accumulating more and more things? How many are just stuck in that mode of being takers? See, we get to live out a different story. God has poured his rich generosity on us, and he is shaping us now to be a giving people, a generous people. I hate it when I hear about Christians being stingy. When I hear this stereotype that Christians are the worst tippers at restaurant, it just eats me up. How could we do that? How can we let that be our reputation, to be, to be stingy takers? I mean, what has God done for us? If we really believe that God has lavished on us his rich, extravagant grace in Jesus Christ, we should just be pouring out. We shouldn't be able to pour out resources and time and money and gifts fast enough. We've got to rewrite the story. What would it look like if we as a church would start to live in light of this? If we as a church would be consistent, extravagant givers? You see a need and you go and you meet it. You see someone and you just give and give and give. I want to try an experiment this week. I challenge the, the, the first service this. I'm going to challenge us in this too. What if we just took this week and we tried to extravagantly give? Like the, the way you grow in giving is to do it. The way you break the bondage of thinking it's mine, mine, mine is to give it away. The way your perspective changes from today and what's in front of me to eternity is by using your money for eternity, using your resources for eternity. So here's a little experiment for this week. Sit down and pray that God would give you eyes to see someone that you can bless this week. Who can you be generous toward this week? And maybe you sit down as a family and you talk about it. Who do we know that we can give something to this week? And maybe it's, maybe it's a small thing. Maybe your family's going to give a batch of cookies. Maybe you're going to give a pie. I actually think giving a pie is a wonderfully extravagant gift. Um, or maybe you are out to eat and you're going to give to another family. You, you see that, that someone else is at another table and you, and you just pick another family and you just take up their bill and you pay for their bill. Or maybe you, you know someone who's in financial distress and, and your family's going to collect some money in a little envelope and you're going to put it under their windshield and, or under their windshield wiper on their car. Or you're going to stuff it in their mailbox or something like that anonymously. But find someone, they don't have to be a Christian, they can be a Christian or not, and just practice giving. And what would it look like if a church full of people would go into a community, not as takers anymore, but just extravagantly, no strings attached, giving? It's not because we're great people. It's because God has given us everything. As we move from this mode of, of, of stealers, of people who take and take and take, and accumulate and accumulate and accumulate, to people who give, we reflect the God who made us and the God who sent his son to redeem a people like us. We've got to rewrite the story. We can't be the stingy people who hang on to everything. We've got to be people who just give and give and give generously, extravagantly, because that's the kind of God that we serve. Please pray with me. God, would you make us people who reflect your glory and your goodness in our community? That incredible challenge in, in the book of Malachi that we heard earlier, where you challenge your people, you say, test me in this and see if I won't pour out the store gates. Would you make us a generous people, not for our own renown, but for your glory, that the people around us would be able to see that you are the ultimate giver Shape us, your people, for your good, for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have the privilege of reading 
um, an experience that Jenny Vogel has recently experienced. In June, my 33-year-old husband, Christian, had a stroke. Obviously, this is not something we were expecting to happen. This was a scary time for me, especially since he continued to get new symptoms about five days after the stroke. While at Mary Freebed Rehabilitation Hospital, Christian had to relearn how to sit up straight, walk, see, talk, swallow, and even sleep at night. In the midst of all of this, though, God was so faithful to us. He showed us he loved us and knew exactly what was going on, and he knew what we needed in order to have peace and trust in him. I'll never forget one of the ways he showed his love to us. Over the 4th of July weekend, Christian's parents were with him. So I came home to Ludington to be with our two-year-old and prepare for Christian's return home later that week. I paid bills, balanced our checkbook, and then went on to purchase the equipment Christian needed to be safe in our home. I remember turning to put the last item in my shopping cart and estimating the total for the purchases. I knew there was still more to buy from the hospital. My stomach started to sink. What if we don't have enough money? We don't even know what the hospital bills will be yet. Before I was able to think through all my worries, God stopped me. He told me not to worry about it and that he would be taking care of everything we needed. I got the message that someone would be giving us extra money. That doesn't usually happen when I'm shopping, by the way. Within a few hours, I was with Christian again. His therapy sessions had completed, and we finally had a chance to talk and catch up from our days apart. He handed me the cards that had come to him in the mail over the weekend. I opened up the last one, saw a check folded inside, and immediately began to cry. I told Christian I knew this was going to happen, that God said he'd take care of us. When I opened the check, I saw it was for hundreds of dollars. It covered the purchase of our medical supplies. The gift was much more than money, though. It was a tangible way that God showed us he is faithful. It confirmed his communication with us. Yes, he said, it was me talking to you in the store. It was also me comforting you as you sensed my presence as the wind moved through the landscaping at the hospital. It was me bringing that therapist by at the strange time and location to say she was praying for you and Christian. It was me allowing your cousin to have a break from work so he could sit with you at the hospital when they tried putting Christian's feeding tube in again. I love you. The check was from the mom of one of my college roommates. After thanking her, she wrote me back to tell me that it was a joy for her to give us that gift. She said she felt God prompting her to give us that specific amount and that she was so happy she got to be part of God showing his love for us in tangible ways. I found out later that she didn't even tell her daughter, my roommate, what she had given us. She just did it. Out of obedience, she gave. Her gift was such a blessing to us as it added yet another reason for us to love our Lord and Savior.